So, good morning to everyone, once again. To continue our uh, investigation, reflections on self-view and this whole area of uh, Buddhist teaching and practice. As I mentioned um, at the end of the early morning session, the uh, five subjects for frequent recollection, sometimes uh, people, when we recite those, particularly in the English and getting the full meaning of it, say, hey, isn't this a bit of a contradiction? You're just rechanting the body is not self, feelings are not self, perceptions are not self, mental formations are not self, consciousness, sense consciousness is not self. So how come... I'm of the nature to age, I'm of the nature to sicken, I'm of the nature to die. All that is mine, beloved and pleasing, will become otherwise. I am the owner of my karma, and so on. So it's a puzzle, a contradiction, apparently. But what it's doing, these are, in a way, uh, uh, means of reflection upon uh, the, the reality of things from a couple of different perspectives. So the, the five subjects for frequent recollection, what it's aiming to do is to start from where we are, our ordinary, habitual, uh, uh, say, attitudes. You know, you're signed up for this retreat, you give your name. This is your room. <laughs> this is your number. Uh, these are the conventional realities. This is my name, this is my room, this is where I'm staying. This is my, my seat in the hall. You know, uh, this is who I am. And that we start off with our ordinary, everyday assumptions about these conventional truths. And then it's sort of, uh, in a sense, that chant is stating our uh, perspective on life from self-view. This is where we start from. And, and <clears throat> so that it's not uh, presenting that as an ultimate reality, but rather, this is what we carry through our days. You know, I'm the nature age. We look in the mirror in the morning and think, oh. <laughs> who's that old guy at least I do <laughs> sometimes that thought who's that old guy looking out of the, of the mirror at me where did he come from I'm of the nature to age you know, that we look in the mirror and we say that's my face right? this is not uh, unusual or, or, or strange our name our age our address our family all of these things are simple ordinary everyday conventional truths that we live with and the purpose of this um, five subjects for frequent recollection is uh, not to say increase the identification but rather look (laughs) this is where we're starting from this is what we're working with and that uh, in a mysterious way by bringing attention onto those assumptions we uh, help ourselves to see beyond them Uh, sometimes when uh, so we're doing this uh, uh, in the puja, doing this, ch- uh, this chant with, with people. They say, well, Ajahn, this is really depressing. You know, I thought we were supposed to be getting beyond all of this. You know, I'm getting, uh, I'm, I'm getting older, I'm going I'm, I'm, uh, to uh, get sick, I'm going to die one day. Everything that I love is going to go. Well, great. <laughs> Thank you very much. Was the Buddha <clears throat> being malicious or, or just sort of uh, cruel? Uh, sadistic in uh, bringing those things to mind but from the point of self-view those are a disaster aging sickness death loss even those words just the english words just it, there's a kind of cramping in the heart just just the words the sound of the words aging death loss 
uh, it's painful. And so the, what the Buddha is doing by encouraging us to pay attention is like, look, <laughs> look at that feeling. Why, why, is, why is there a sense of, of sadness or, or, or uh, oppression in the heart when those simple everyday natural realities are brought to attention? Look at that. Where does that come from? So it's to encourage that quality of investigation. And, by, and in a mysterious way, when we push away aging, sickness, death, loss, and the, the laws of cause and effect, I'm the owner of my karma, heir to my karma, and so on. When those are pushed away, we try to pretend that we're not getting older, we're not, uh, we're not, uh, we're not going to get sick, we're not, we're not going to die, or that... You know, <coughs> the, um, uh, that uh, and everything that I love is going to stay with me. <laughs> if we are trying to hold on to that, then every indication from the natural order, from our, our minds, our bodies, the, the world around us, that says, uh-uh, <laughs> aging is proceeding, <laughs> and you're going to get sick one day, and when one day the last breath will come, that, that shouldn't be a surprise to us. Uh, that's, uh, if we're attached to self-view, those are a shock and they're painful. But if we turn the attention to them instead and, say, and recognize, well, of course, how could it be otherwise? Then it's uh, helping to illuminate that habit, the, the attachment. I, I was talking on this theme at the, uh, the little center in uh, Dwarka in, De- in the north of Delhi, and that uh, they've opened up a, a Botox clinic across the way from the Dhamma Center. Very conveniently, so. <laughs> I mean, maybe some of you are... Uh, uh, the surgeons who are involved in the industry, yes, I, I apologize, to, I'm not trying to make fun of you, but it was kind of curious. You've got the Dhamma Center on one side of the street and the Botox Center on the, literally across the road. So, so, interesting juxtaposition. And sometimes you have the, the, uh, the, the hairdresser, the nail parlor, the tanning, the tanning salon in the West more, more often, and the... Um, uh, the um, uh, the, uh, having your your nail your, your nails done, so you have the hair of the head, hair of the body, the nails, and skin. The dentist is usually somewhere else, <laughs> but also cosmetic dentistry is is a big part of people's lives. So this is a, a huge industry, a huge concern. People wanting to prevent the aging process. Um, obviously, we need to look after sickness, but but to, to notice the kind of anxiety that we live with like i don't want to get sick i don't want uh, to be to be burdened by that or even using the word burden in terms of sickness uh, and in terms of death again as i was talking about this at the um uh, dhammarama center um one of the the the, the passages the mahabharata as i'm sure m- most people here know is a very very long epic poem but one of the most interesting and powerful uh, passages in the Mahabharata that I'm a little familiar with is at a certain point in the story then of the five brothers, the five Pandava brothers, four of them have been knocked out and are probably dead. And the other one, the last one is being questioned by this, this voice out of the mist, kind of this disembodied voice pumping him with questions. He's got to get every single one right, <laughs> otherwise they're all dead and gone, and gone and the story would end right there. And so one of the questions that the, this last uh, of the Pandavas is asked is, what is the most uh, mysterious and strange thing in the world? Oh, words to that effect. And he answers, 
the most strange and mysterious thing in the world is that every single one of us will enter the gates of death one day, but we all, th- we all somehow think it won't happen to us. Right answer. <laughs> so, and that's, we have a kind of forgettery, as long as, along with a memory, we have a sort of forgettery or a, an internal editor that pushes those things away. But th- this is the fact of nature. E- every single one of us in this hall, and uh, or, uh, everyone, one day there'll be a, an out-breath and no more in-breath. That's, that's not a surprise. That's not news. But when we see each other, when we meet, we don't think in those terms, do we? We think, oh, there's, there's uh, Sachidara, uh, you know, there's Paco, there's, uh, there's, uh, there's Anish at the back there. You know, we think, oh, this is people I know. These are uh, familiar faces. And that uh, we don't think, oh, Paco, you're going to die one day. <laughs> doesn't come to mind if I can use you as a, an object in the Dhamma, Dhamma presentation so that, uh, that, that something in the mind pushes those away and pushes those natural realities away and then we make efforts to uh, say deal with that anxiety by, by preserving our, our, our well-being, our looks our, our, um, uh, and the fact of the death of these bodies is, is pushed off over the horizon. So this uh, set of reflections is to bring that to attention, say, look, (laughs) this is the natural reality. Nothing to be afraid of. This is how nature works. It's frightening and off-putting from the perspective of self-view, but from the perspective of Dhamma, uh, from the perspective of nature, of reality, when when it's looked at in that way, then the heart says, of course, how could it be otherwise? Ah, and there's a sense of, of, uh, of ease, of, of a lack of anxiety, a lack of fear. Of course, this is, this is how it is. How could it be otherwise? So uh, this is one skillful means that is established in this uh, tradition of practice of getting the attention on the habits of self-view, illuminating them by looking at them, and awakening that intuition of what lies beyond the habits of self-view, and essentially to help shift the view from being self-centered to being dhamma-centered or, or nature-centered. And that's, in a way, the essence of, of uh, insight practice and the development of wis- wisdom in the Buddhist tradition is that simple shift, well, simple, <laughs> simple but not easy, <laughs> simple but not easy shift from a self-centered perspective, seeing in terms of I and me and mine, to the Dhamma-centered perspective, a perspective centered upon the reality of the way things actually are. Oh, many years ago, um, uh, when I was living at uh, Amaravati Monastery in England, I was there from 1985 to 95, and during that period, uh, Venerable Ajahn Sumedho had a, a number of, of themes that he would... Uh, Use as a basis for teaching uh, over and over and over again. And uh, for a certain period in the late 80s, early 90s, uh, he would uh, emphasize, he say, that uh, we, what we need to do is to, to change the paradigm, to make that, uh, that shift of a view, to change the paradigm from I'm an unenlightened person who's got to do something now in order to become enlightened in the future to being awake now. Don't, don't uh, cast the, the, the practice of Dhamma into the framework of I am a person, but rather uh, 
rather than I'm a person who's unenlightened who needs to do something now to become enlightened in the future, be awake now. And similarly, rather than thinking in terms of me and my problems, think in terms of the awake mind, the Buddha mind, seeing the way things are. And, and so not from a sort of an egotistical point of view, like, oh, I'm, the, I'm the Buddha mind, that's what I am. <laughs> but that awake, aware quality, that capacity of the heart the, to know, the, the, the ability, the, the potential of the citta to know uh, clearly and without delusion, uh, to rather than me and my problems, here is the awake mind seeing the way things are. And uh, he would use these as, uh, as themes over and over again, day after day. <laughs> and uh, for myself and, uh, and others, it took quite a while for the penny to drop, as they say. Because, <laughs> well, I am an unenlightened person, and I do need to do something now in order to become enlightened in the future. What's wrong with that, Ajahn? <laughs> but then, slowly but surely, you, you know, the... The, um, the message began to get through is that, oh, well, what he's saying is that we tend to cast everything in the terms of, uh, in terms of self-view. I am this person. I am Ajahn Amaro. You know, this is who I am. And time is passing. It's now nine o'clock in the morning. quarter of an hour has gone by since we started this session. It's, it's um, the 6th of December, you know. We take time to be real, we take identity to be real, we take location to be absolutely real because of the attachment to the senses. And so he was saying over and over, we need to change that, that paradigm from um, I've, uh, I am a person who is unenlightened, who's got to do something now to become enlightened in the future. It's like, stop, wait, <laughs> take a step back. That, that the mind which knows personhood, uh, the, the, that which knows personal qualities arising and passing away, isn't really a person. It's awake, it's aware, but it knows the personal qualities arising and passing, but that awareness isn't a person, doesn't belong to anyone, and isn't, uh, uh, is uh, uh, free of any personal characteristics. And like, uh, uh, we, we don't use, uh, we don't relate to gravity in personal terms, do we? Like my gravity, your Tan Mahapanyo's gravity. It's like, no. Or <laughs> Praveen's gravity. It's like, no, it's not personal. You don't say it's mine. We don't say female gravity or, 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 uh, or non binary gravity or male gravity. It's, it's like, it's just gravity. It's a, natural, uh, it's a natural quality. It's not personal. It can't be owned. It's, uh, it, it doesn't have any kind of name or, or location. It's everywhere. It operates everywhere. It's a force we all experience, but it's not something that and it affects all our lives. The, the, the pull of the earth on these bodies, we feel it. We know it. Uh, but it's not personal. So I would suggest we can relate to the quality of awareness in that way. And that um, in, in this change of perspective, that rather than I'm an unenlightened person, no, there's, there's the awake mind can know personal qualities, feelings in the body, thoughts in the mind, sounds in, that we hear, shapes that we see, uh, there's personal experiences, personal qualities, memories, ideas, emotions, they can be known by that quality of awareness as they arise and pass away, but that awareness isn't isn't personal. It's not uh, it's not an identity. It's here. It's it's and it's real. I would say, but uh, it's <clears throat> it's present and it's what knows the field of experience. 
But uh, it knows the person arising and passing away, and, but it's not uh, a person. So in, in one way also of reflecting upon it is, and this, this might be, sound a bit heretical, uh, but I say there's really no such thing as an enlightened person. From the outside, it looks like that person's enlightened or that person is not enlightened. From it, but from inside, there's just the awake mind knowing personal qualities arising and passing away. I'm not presenting myself as an enlightened being, but uh, um, I, I feel this is along this theme that we're looking at this week. This is a helpful reflection that there isn't anything, no such thing as an enlightened person. From the outside, it looks like you know the Buddha is enlightened, but from the inside, there is no personal quality that the Buddha is identifying with, or an enlightened being is identifying with. That awareness, that knowing quality, observes the body of feelings, thoughts, perceptions, mental formations, sense consciousness arising and passing away, taking shape and dissolving. But it's not a person; doesn't belong to a person. Does that make sense? We'll have an opportunity, plenty of opportunity for some questions and some dialogue uh, later on. But uh, I just wanted to put that into the mix <laughs> to help us to to reflect on the, the assumptions that we make. You know, I'm a woman, I'm a man, I'm old, I'm young. I'm, yeah, this is my name, this is my story. So, you know, and on that, that theme, it's also helpful when we say self-view, um, uh, both in terms of the Buddhist, Buddhist psychology and Western psychology, there's a lot of selves that get created. A lot of there's not just one kind of a a, a, a feeling of selfhood, but there's a lot of different selves, uh, and they're, uh, uh, they're enumerated or listed in various different ways. I think in Western psychology, some psychologists have got great long lists of like 15 or 20 different kinds of selfing that goes on. But uh, as a, a simple list of four or five, I would say, first of all, we have the owning self. Now, not that these are real selves, but just that's that impression of the you know, I own things. Like there's the, the me that, this is my pen. I, I own this pen. This is my bit of paper with, uh, for, to write notes on. <laughs> this is my pen. That feeling of a, there's a me here who's the owner. So the owning self uh, uh, that that feeling of, of ownership, this belongs to me. There's a thing here that is a genuine owner of this body or this pen or, or um, you know, these robes and such like. So then there's a, a being self, the sense of I, I exist, I, I, I am. There's, I, I am. <laughs> I, am a, I am a person, I am, I am this. Whatever this is, I am it. So that sense of, of being... Um, that us me, I am. The, that I am feeling can, can seem very strong and substantial. Uh, then the third one is what the, uh, I like to call the narrative self. When someone says, well, who are you? And you say, well, my name is Ajahn Amaro. I live at Amaravati Monastery in England. And our name, our family, our story, our profession. You know, when, you, when you meet someone uh, in a family gathering or in, the, in your workplace or in the, in the cafeteria, <laughs> who are you? The, the, the story that we tell, uh, where we come from, what our hometown is, what our nationality is, which, uh, which football team we support, <laughs> or, you know, which branch of Buddhism you're a part of. You know, you know, I'm, a, I'm a Theravadan, I'm a, a Drugpa Kagyu, you know, I'm, a, I'm a Nyingma. You know, the, uh, that's what I am. So that's all in the narrative self packet. <laughs> 
These are all empty. None of these have any absolute substance, but they're what we create, what we carry around, and and how we present uh, the picture to... uh, to um, uh, to the mind and how what we carry around through the day. Then uh, I would say there's the feeling self, like I'm comfortable, I'm uncomfortable, I'm hungry, I'm full, I'm hot, I'm cold. That that feeling self that seems to be the recipient or the experiencer of of feelings of sensations. Um, then you have. The uh, me, the the thinker. You know, these are my ideas, my memories. <laughs> yeah, I, I think, I understand, I I don't understand. So that that uh, thinking self, and then just to keep it simple, I say uh, the last on this little list would be the deciding self. You know, I choose a sense of I'm making a decision. I've decided to come on this retreat. I've chosen these words to speak. <laughs> I've uh, uh, I've. Me put on my. Uh, I've got my my, uh, my my wrap to keep my neck warm today. I chose to wear this around my neck. The eye that chooses makes decisions. Uh, again, in, in terms of, and probably in the in Buddhist commentary or literature, they've probably got twenty or thirty or forty, fifty of these as well as Western psychologists. But just as a, a compact list of, of five or six of those, I think that's enough to be going on with. So I'm not saying that these are real individual uh, uh, selves, but rather these impressions of me, the owner, me, me, uh, the who is this, me, who is uh, has this story, me, who feels, me, who thinks, uh, the the decider. Uh, the, these are all different modes in which that that feeling of, of identity you know, arises and takes shape and um, forms. Or, uh, based on the, the experience and patterns of, of perception and thinking uh, in each moment. So with, with all of these different kinds of selfing, um, the most potent tool that uh, we have within the, this within the Southern Buddhist world uh, is uh, to, to work with these and to, to uh, free the heart from limitation uh, and from dukkha, from dissatisfaction on account of these believing in these different uh, selves and, and attaching to them, is uh, meditation, insight meditation in particular, vipassana. So I wanted to talk about that a little bit uh, this morning also to introduce that in more detail as a theme. Uh, so that as we had in the morning chanting, we go through the, these, uh, these lists of uh, Rupa, Vedana, Sanya, Sankara, Vijnana. Form, meaning the, you know, the body or material form. It can be you know, this body or, or material objects. Rupa just means material form. Vedana is sensation, uh, the feelings of comfort, discomfort, pain, pleasure, neutral feeling. Sanya is all the other varieties of perception, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. Uh, uh, the, the, the sense of the body, um, and, uh, and also the aspects of the, the thinking mind, sanya is perception. Sankara is the, the realm of mental activity, thinking, remembering, uh, imagining, emotions, uh, this big, big range of mental activity. It all comes under the, the realm, the, the domain of sankara, um, mental formations. And the last one is vijnana, which is translated as sense consciousness. 
And it, so these, these together are called the five khandas or the five groups. It's a, a convenient way of dividing up the aspects of body and mind or the material world and the mental world. So this isn't like a, a sort of super refined way of categorizing every detail, but uh, within the Southern Buddhist tradition, uh, in the Pali Canon, very often the, the Buddha's way of speaking and teaching was to use very ordinary household kind of language and, and metaphors and images. So the word kanda just literally means a group or a heap or a lump, like, like your, your shoulder is a, is a kanda, a hill is a kanda. The, uh, the, the town in Sri Lanka, Kandy, it comes from the word kanda, it's on a hill, it's, it's, it's a lump. So it's a very basic, so these five heaps or these five groups. Um, and it's a, convenient defi- uh, it's a convenient way of speaking, so you can't really divide them up completely from each other. And uh, in one set of dialogue, uh, a set of dialogues in the in the Pali Canon in the middle length discourses. So in one uh, Dhamma dialogue, uh, the question is asked: you know, feeling, perception, and consciousness are they are they completely separate, or are they are they somehow conjoined? Are they do they affect each other? Are they connected? And the response that the, I think it's the Arahant Nan. Um, Dhammadina gives the answer, they are, they're conjoined, they're disjoined, because that which we, that which we, um, uh, that which we cognize, we feel, that which we feel, we perceive, that they, they are, they're related. What we, what we perceive, we, we feel, we co- uh, that which we feel, we cognize. That you can't completely divide them up from each other. Like uh, the, f- the feeling of sensation in the body isn't completely separate from the perception of the body. They, they overlap. But it's just a convenient way, an easy sort of household way of dividing up. You know, here's the fine sand, here's the, here's the ordinary sand, here's the, co- here's the fine gravel, here's the heavy gravel, and here's the, the broken up bricks for the hardcore. It's kind of these heaps, <laughs> like in a builder's yard. It's just like a convenient way of dividing it up. So uh, it's a way of looking at the aspects of this body and this mind. And then the uh, uh, labeling each of these, uh, these five, uh, each one of these five groups, uh, each one as they are uh, anicca. Anicca means in a state of change or it's, uh, it's uncertain. Um, so rupang anichang. Uh, form is in a state of change. You know, every one of our bodies is constantly changing, the material world, even something that we call you know, solid, like this microphone stand or this table, you know, even something that's got quite a, a stable structure. Still, there's, there's molecules drifting off and things landing on it. Uh, so every aspect of material form is constantly changing. So, so too with feeling, sensation, uh, every, every sensation of the body is changing. Uh, perceptions... Your light is coming and going. The sun comes out. <laughs> the air warms up. Uh, yeah, so perception, sound is changing. My voice uh, is changing. The um, the uh, the world of sanya of of perception is in a constant state of change. Mental formations, thoughts, of memories, ideas, emotions again, incredibly fluid and and mobile, changing. And then vinyana. So. Uh, uh, Again, the vinyana is, con- is translated as sense conscious or sometimes as discriminative consciousness. And it, it, it's, um, it can be confusing because uh, the way we use the word consciousness in English is, uh, uh, say, comparable to the, that quality of 
uh, a, a, a kind of a clear awareness, that clear uh, awakened awareness. But in the context of this, these five groups, when we use the word vinyana, it's really, as far as uh, my many years of reflections on this, of the best way to describe it, it's really I, the, what it's referring to is the building blocks of experience. So any of you who have a bit of background in biology or neuroscience will know that uh, when we, we see something, the, the, the light goes into the eye, it creates uh, electrical impulses that go down through the optic nerve. Those impulses go into the, the visual cortex of the brain and then the, the visual cortex conjures up a, a, a mental representation of the, the color, the form, the, the shape of that which is seen. And so the, what we see, like this room and the, 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 the shrine of uh, Bodhisattva Manjushri behind me and uh, uh, the morning here in, uh, in, in Deer Park, that's our mind's representation of what is here through the visual world. So each of us doesn't experience the world, we experience our mind's version of the world. I close my eyes, you all disappear. I open them, yeah, everyone's here again. <laughs> So um, the, uh, each of those um, aspects of the visual world is just pop, 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 pop. impulses going from the, the, uh, the light receptors in the back of the eye, going down the optic nerve, going into the brain, and then being pieced together so that our visual cortex the, the, uh, creates a, a, a good enough representation of what's here uh, in, uh, to, uh, in the terms of visual form. Um, when it's when it's nighttime, when the light is dim, you can't see clearly. Then you know you can easily put your foot into a into a, a gutter, or you, you you tread on a, a stone, or you you can't see clearly. Things are dim. The eye can't hasn't got enough light to get a, a good picture, a good representation of what's there. So those those individual um, uh, points of of, uh, of say firing in the optic nerve or the, in the visual cortex. Um, uh, that create the the pixels of, uh, of experience, like the the pixels on a digital camera or, a, or on an iPhone or whatever. That is what the vinyana refers to. It's like the pixels of experience, the individual increments of uh, that make up what we hear, what we see, what we think. The do, 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 all that little uh, tiny uh, m- uh, minuscule building blocks of experience that is that are put together. That is what we mean by by vinyana, the the fabric of the experiential field. Again, I hope that makes sense. <laughs> uh, uh, but we'll have time during the question period to to look at that. So, looking at the the changing quality of form, feeling, perception, mental formations, consciousness, then the next part is also looking at unsatisfactoriness, dukkha that no particular sensory experience or in terms of mental experience of thought or of states of, of, um, of internal concentration and such like, no conditioned experience can permanently satisfy. So the word dukkha literally means hard to bear, unsatisfactory, incomplete, I- imperfect. It's built up of two Pali words, du, which means bad or wrong or imbalanced or out of uh, out of order, uh, it's, which comes up as a suffix, uh, beginning part of a word very, very often. And then akka, 
And akha is related to the, the English word axle, the hole at the center of a wheel that the pin goes through or the, the axle goes through. Uh, that is the, the akha, is the, the, the hole at the center of, the, of a wheel. And the, 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 the bar that goes through it, the wheel spins on like the axle. So du akha is the wheel is not set true on its axle. <laughs> it's like a wobbling wheel. I'm sure all of us experience on bicycles or uh, on uh, uh, maybe uh, the trolley at the, at the airport getting here, if you flew, from, uh, flew into Dharamsala Airport. That wobbling wheel, that, that's a, a good image of dukkha, that things are out of balance, out of kilter, is a useful English word. Uh, so uh, that no sensory experience can permanently and completely satisfy. That's not just a negative view on life, it's saying, well, the, that's the way nature works, that no matter how blissful or pleasant an experience is in one moment, it can't stay completely blissful and satisfying. That's the, the way that the experiential um, process works. The, the mind will always adapt. Uh, it'll make that blissful feeling average. So, uh, and again, it's a very common experience, say, with food. Uh, or, the, or just like the, the sun coming out into the room. Ah, oh, the sun's come out. How long did it stay in that, ah? You know, already, the sun coming through the window is ordinary, isn't it? I'm not reading anybody's mind. Or when you have uh, your breakfast, you go, ooh, chai garam. Great. And then by the time you're at the fifth or sixth sip, it's just, it's just tea. But that first sip, it's like, yes. So, uh, this is dukkha. You know? Things can't stay at that yes uh, place all the time. It's, it's not, they, well, if you really work it well and you get really good tea or you, you're really sitting in the right place and it would be pleasant all the time, so, well, good luck. <laughs> but uh, the, the Buddha's teaching it suggests that it, it isn't that way that there's no experience that can, can stay permanently pleasing and, and satisfying. And then the, the, third, the third aspect, that of anatta, anicca dukkha and anatta, anatta means not self. So this is a, a very, very closely related to our theme for this week about self-view. So atta means self, the Sanskrit is atman. And... Uh, and so the, the Buddha's teaching is um, it's not trying to make us believe that we don't exist or nothing is real, but it's saying that which we usually think is real and solid and permanent, our body, our feelings, our perceptions and our thoughts and emotions, you know, these are not truly and completely who and what we are. These are anatta, they're not atta. So they're again going through that, the list of the five groups, the five khandhas, uh, material form, the body is not self. We've all been breathing since we came into the room, so when we all entered the, this Manjushri hall uh, just now, the, the air in here was the Manjushri hall. We've all been breathing in the oxygen and breathing out the carbon, uh, carbon dioxide, so, so yeah, what was Manjushri hall is now you, <laughs> and what was you is now Manjushri hall, right? We've all been breathing, uh, oxygen's been going in, carbon dioxide's been going out. And we've all been shedding various amounts of dust from our skin and bits of, of things from our clothing. So um, it's not self. The body is not self. 
Similarly, feelings, perceptions, mental formations, consciousness, we can't say any of those are truly and absolutely who and what we are. Um, and the, um, the presentation of these three qualities, they're called the, the three characteristics of existence, they're not things to believe in. Like the Buddha's telling us to believe that, that the body is not self, but rather they are tools to investigate, suggestions. Rupang anatta, the body is not self. Is that so? Is, how is that? How is that the case? Or uh, rupang anichang, is the body in a state of change? You know, okay, so it's they are tools to explore. They're like magnifying glasses or or a set of screwdrivers to open up the, the you know the uh, an engine or a, a clock, a, a watch, They're a set of tools to investigate how this is all put together, not articles of belief they're not just you should believe everything is impermanent or you should believe everything is unsatisfactory or everything is not self but like is that the case is that, how does this work this it really feels like there's a me who's the owner of this now how can that how, how could that not be the case what what's going on here so i, I feel that's a very important principle to bring to mind is that these are tools for investigation not things to believe in or disbelieve in <laughs> or have an opinion about, but rather like a set of screwdrivers or spanners or, or kitchen implements to, to use for these various tasks. So vipassana meditation, uh, the basic methodology is when the, the, the attention is steadily based in the present moment, when there's enough concentration to stay with the present moment experience, then rather than just focusing on the breath as a simple object to kind of anchor the attention, if, if, the, if the, the attention is already well established, and rather than having to anchor your boat out in the water, if the boat's pulled safely up onto the beach, it doesn't need to be anchored. <laughs> so the, uh, if the mind is able to rest steadily in the present, then there's a conscious opening of the field of awareness to include everything. Uh, what we see, what we feel, the, the thoughts that come into the mind, the waves of emotion, memory, uh, imagination, so on. So there's a conscious opening up of the field of experience, and then uh, the the effort is to stay with the uh, the present reality and to keep attending to that. But uh, in, instead of say focusing on the details of experience, it's a, a letting go of the content of the experiential world. To, know, to be aware of the process of, of experiencing. So letting go of the content to look at the, the process. So, uh, for example, here is, you know, here's a book, Johnny book. So, so usually we're, we're paying attention to, this is page 70, this is page 44, five subjects of frequent recollection. We get absorbed into the content. There's, you know, this uh, here's the here are the windows. Here's the floor. Here's the microphone. Here are the people. Here's me. Um, we get involved in the detail, the content. So vipassana meditation is a lot to do with letting go of the content, looking at the process. Say, it's a book. <laughs> Full stop. Is seeing. Seeing is in a state of change. Seeing is unsatisfactory. Seeing is not self. It's just seeing. There is that experience of seeing uh, a form arising and passing away. So it's a deliberate letting go of the content to know the process of experiencing. So it's quite hard work <laughs> to, to do that, to not get distracted by the, the, um, 
the particular uh, the details, but um, those uh, three characteristics of uh, an, uh, anicca, change, dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, and anatta, not-self, they're kind of reminders that we use uh, that uh, rather than, oh, that really hurts, like, well, is it changing? Oh, right, it's changing. And then we let go of that, the, the content of the feeling, say, well, it's, uh, it's painful, but it's, it's in a state of change. It's anichang. So that... Uh, the, the work of insight meditation is whether it's a, a sound that we hear, a thought that we uh, goes through our mind, a brilliant idea or a depressing memory, um, uh, whether it's a, a taste on our tongue or um, something that we smell, uh, seen, heard, smelled, taste, touched, thought. Um, it doesn't matter. Any object is, is all part of, uh, of the process of insight meditation. But uh, uh, usually insight practice is done sitting still with our eyes closed so that you're minimizing the, the, the range of experience to some extent. Uh, but the, the, the point of the practice is to learn how to let go of the content, to know the process of experiencing. And in that, the insight, that, that's a kind of the mechanics of it, but the actual insight, what makes it the, the, the vipassana, vi, seeing uh, inwardly, vipassana, seeing inwardly, is the change of heart that comes from that. The, the, oh, it's just a feeling. Oh, it's just a sound. Oh, it's just smelling. It's just, oh, this is just thinking. That's all. Oh. So that change of heart, that letting go, and that spaciousness and clarity of, uh, of awareness uh, uh, and peacefulness, uh, that sense of ease that comes when there's a uh, letting go uh, of of a grasping of identification with, with what we see here, smell, taste, and touch, that's the uh, the kind of the essence of vipassana practice. The, the methodology is sort of part one. Part two is the change of heart. The the, the oh, uh, it's just a thought. It's a painful thought, but it's just a thought. Oh, it's a, it's a, it's just is a taste. It's a sweet taste, but it's just a taste. Oh. And uh, we're not trying to annihilate experience or suppress it uh, or deny it, but rather change the view of that, uh, that flow of experience. And that change of view, that change of heart, seeing things in, is the essence of how we go from seeing things in terms of our egotistical, self-centered habits to seeing things in terms of nature. So I offer those... Uh, thoughts for consideration uh, this morning.